Welcome back to Raising Unicorns. I'm Benton Crane. In today's episode, you'll hear from Will Young, the founder and CEO of Sana Benefits. Sana is a young startup that is being a major disruptor in the healthcare industry. Will and I talk about what it's like to work with venture capitalists, and we also go through some best practices for differentiating your company. Unicorns are real. In the past eight years, Harmon Brothers has helped raise five unicorns. Yes, that's five companies with a billion dollar valuation, with at least six more companies right on the cusp of becoming unicorns. Here on Raising Unicorns, we share the lessons we've learned to help you grow your business by tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars. It's time to start raising a unicorn of your own. All right, Will, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be on the show. Now, Will, tell us about how you ended up founding Sana Benefits. What brought you to that point of saying, you know what, this is what I want to do for the next several years of my life? Well, I've been working at another company that sold payroll and benefits. And I think the best way to come up with a business idea is to experience real customer pain, you know, Mm -hmm. to experience something in the world where, you know, somebody says, oh man, this product is terrible or this service could be so much better. And I just saw that in spades with health insurance at this company, JustWorks, that I was at. And it's one of these things that sort of is around us and in our lives that it's like the elephant in the room, but no one sees it like taxes, you know, it's yep. just something like health insurance. It's there and it's incredibly expensive and difficult. And everybody sort of accepts it as a fact of life that it has to be difficult and bad and, you know, surprise bills and confusing. And everyone just takes that for granted. When I was thinking about business ideas, it didn't even occur to me But then I was reflecting on my experience at JostWorks and I thought, what did people care the most about? What was the most painful thing they had to deal with? And health insurance was way at the top of the list, like an order of magnitude more expensive than everything else Mm -hmm. and more painful and important than everything else. And right as I was sort of thinking about what I might want to do in terms of building a business, my co-founder, Nathan, also left JustWorks and also got excited about this idea of finding a way to make a better version of this service that is so important to people. It just felt huge and important and exciting to think about doing it better. As you say that, I'm reminded of the book, The User Method, you know, which basically argues that, you know, some of the best businesses and some of the best ideas just started with people saying, oh man, this one thing could be better or this one thing sucks and I could solve this one problem. And then it turns out solving that problem for them ends up solving it for millions of other people. Did this feel a little bit like that where you were just experiencing it and going, man, this whole insurance thing sucks. The idea for what we could fix expanded a lot. Like the very first thread we started pulling was, man, health insurance is expensive. Can Mm -hmm. we just make this a little bit cheaper? And it was obvious if we could make health insurance a little bit cheaper, there'd be a big market. But then as you start pulling, it's like, well, why is health insurance so expensive? And you start peeling back the layers of the onion and you start discovering all of the dysfunctions at every layer, all the distortions in people's incentives, all of regulatory problems that make it hard to be innovative, the old technology that people are bogged down by to prevent them from using, you know, new consumer-like tools to access healthcare. And so once you start peeling back the onion, yeah, it was like, well, we could solve this for ourselves, sure. But it was so obvious that everybody has this problem. I mean, people from, you know, small business owners that we primarily work with today to, you know, 
my parents to, <laughs> you know, myself. I've had a couple of kids in the last few years and like just dealing with the bills from delivery and pediatricians. The system is such a mess. Yep. Someone just needs to come in and fix it. And that's what we're trying to do. When you launched Sana Benefits, it sounds like it started as, hey, let's make health insurance more affordable, but it's yes. kind of evolved into something more than that. And now it's let's fix health insurance. Is that how you would describe sauna benefits today? Well, our mission is to make quality healthcare more understandable, accessible, and affordable. Not to fix health insurance per se. Health insurance is different than other kinds of insurance. Like if you buy an auto insurance policy, you know, if you're the auto insurer, very small number of people are going to have claim. Yep. And so really you're looking at statistics and you're saying, okay, how often is someone going to get into a fender bender? And then it's sort of like a statistical exercise. Health insurance, though, people use it. Everybody uses it mm -hmm. all the time. And so there's a real opportunity in health insurance to not just be you know, looking at a statistical output and saying, okay, this is what the price should be, but actually saying, well, we should vertically integrate. We should start providing healthcare services ourselves, or we should be opinionated about where people go for care. So once that light bulb went off, when we were saying, okay, how do we make health insurance cost lower. We're like, oh, well, we should make healthcare costs lower. Just the scope of ambition of what we could do really broadened. And that mission was just much more motivating to us and to all the people that we brought on. You know, fixing health insurance is not that inspiring. Changing how our health system works and making it work better for patients, for doctors, for you know employers, like that's an exciting thing to get up out of bed every morning and actually start working on. If that is kind of the future of sauna benefits, what is the today of sauna benefits? So today we offer affordable small business health plans and small businesses mean, you know, our average customer size is around 10 employees. Uh -huh. So, you know, we really go small and, and we sell down to two employees. So any employer that has one employee could buy sauna benefits. We're in eight states today and, you know, we've been adding a, a couple states every quarter. So, you know, the goal is to be nationwide very soon. We're focused on a neglected segment in the market. These really small companies that don't get a lot of the innovation or pricing advantages that really large companies get. We're bringing a lot of that innovation down market. And so these plans are lower cost and you get access to care delivery and different sorts of next generation care that you would only get if you went to a more larger or, you know, sort of more innovative big company. So the product is better, cheaper, small group health plans. But I think the long run idea is we build up this base of customers and we build a product that actually delivers better health care. You know, then we can start offering that beyond just small groups to large groups, to individuals. Once you get a better mousetrap, you know, you can do a lot with that. Yeah, healthcare is such a massive, massive, massive industry. And yet, like you've pointed out, it is so inefficient, so bloated, so many layers, so many malaligned incentives, all these things. And like you're saying, once you nail that better mousetrap, the sky really is the limit. You know, that ties in really well to the theme of the podcast, which is raising unicorns and exploring this journey that entrepreneurs go on, you know, from starting out in obscurity and eventually working into that unicorn that is solving problems for millions and millions of people, blessing the lives of employees and their families, customers and their families, and just making such a huge impact on the world. If you could, Will, tell us a little bit about 
what that journey's like, understanding that you're kind of right in the middle of it, right? Sauna Benefits is still, it's not tiny. It's not a, a tiny little startup anymore, but nor is it anywhere near what its potential has for it for the future. So talk to us a little bit about kind of the journey of going from startup to where you're at today. And then after that, we'll talk a little bit about getting from where you're at today to where you want to go. Yeah, great. So we've got, you know, on the order of tens of thousands of people on our health plans today. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot more than zero where we started, (laughs) where everyone starts. But it's still a lot less than, you know, the smallest Blue Cross plan has hundreds of thousands. You know, if you're in Rhode Island and you're on a Blue Cross plan, you've got hundreds of thousands of lives. And the sort of big health insurers have tens of millions of lives. The U.S. population is 300 plus million. So tens of thousands of lives is in some ways very large, in some ways very small. So you're, you're right on that it's, we're right in these early innings of this journey. But when we started, I mean, it was so hard. And you talk about rising from obscurity into, you know, hopefully someday we earn that unicorn title. But the early days we started, it took us a year and a half after we started the company to get a single client, you know, one customer that had a little over 20 employees. And it was a year and a half. We've only been around for five years. And so the first, you know, quarter of of our history was just doing anything we could to struggle and get one client to take a risk on on us as a, a provider of their health plan. And that was so hard. You know, we, we were going in, we were pitching investors and saying, we've got a path to a better mousetrap mm-hmm. for healthcare. And we were first-time entrepreneurs. And I think in some sense, our ambition, which was to change the healthcare system, was too absurd for a lot of investors. <laughs> you know, we'd go yep. in and I think they looked at these two guys that had a, you know, poorly designed PowerPoint deck that had fantastical numbers and really so much naivety about how the world works, you know? And they looked at us and they said, no way, you know, no way these people succeed. And it took a long time for us to find investors that would believe in us. And it took a long time to find customers. But once you get that first one, that first investor that believes in you and that first customer, then you can start proving it. And every subsequent person you bring on, whether that's an employee or a customer or an investor, it becomes a little bit easier to bring them into the vision because then you can point backwards to the Mm -hmm. last one that worked. And so in October of 2018, that's when we got our first customer, one customer, 25 employees, November, zero new ones. So we just had one. So, (laughs) and then, you know, sorry, it was September of 2018, we got our first, in October, none. And then November, we got two more. December, we got four more. And then January, we got like seven more. So it just started accelerating. And then you're climbing. At that point, we were sort of a handful of employees. And then by the end of that year, we were maybe 30 or 40 employees. And you're just sort of, you're growing the business in parallel with, you know, the customers you acquire. But wow. it was a hard road. 18 months to your first customer. That is like, what a grind. I don't know of many businesses that have to grind for that long to hit that first customer. I'm sure there are some in like the manufacturing space and stuff where they're, you know, they're building really complex products or whatever, but hats off to you. Yeah. There was just so much on the technology build side that we had to do. I mean, we built a claims adjudication system and an underwriting system and an enrollment system. Like Nathan, my co-founder had this sort of heroic effort at the start of our business where he just built out a full, you know, enterprise software platform to power everything in this, you know, 
fit of genius over the course of a year that allowed us to bring one on. And then I was on the other side, getting all of our licenses in place and finding all of the partners that we could have people go to the pharmacy and have a mm-hmm. network and you know issue medical ID cards. And there's just so much infrastructure. Just a huge lift. Before you can close one customer. But I think the hardest thing was convincing people to take a risk because who wants to be the first customer of a new health insurance uh, yeah. solution? <laughs> yeah, it, who wants to put their lives in this company's hands? That's so hard. Yeah, it's like with an app or something, you always have like people who are super excited to be the early adopters because they want to be on the cutting edge. But when your health is on the line, that's a different story. So yeah, I can see why that was a, a huge challenge. Now, aside from, you know, really picking up steam on acquiring customers and getting momentum and getting the flywheel spinning on that front, talk to us about the investor side of it. What are some of the milestones where you feel like a proverbial domino fell, so to speak, that kind of then tipped over other dominoes? You know, finding the right backers was so important and it was so hard for us initially. You know, venture capital has a reputation on the outside for being you know, funding huge, ambitious ideas. Yep. But I found in practice, most venture capitalists are not risk takers. They want to follow a pattern that yes. others have followed. You know, they want Uber for, you know, dog food or whatever. They, they want this for that. Or they want they want to know who else is investing and then they'll pile in once yes. Sequoia comes in. Yes. And what, what they really don't want is to take a big swing on something and then fail. And then they have to go back to their investors, their LPs and say, yeah, we invested in this company and it's a zero. You know, they really don't want to say that because they want to go and raise their next fund. They want investments that are likely to get marked up. This was a misconception that I had that, oh, people are going to love the ambition. People are going to love how technically difficult it is. That's a barrier. And they're going to love that this big swing, if it works out, on an expected value basis is going to be so great. And I was really disappointed that that's just not what I saw. You know, my experience of talking with investors was not that. But then eventually I did find a couple of investors who got it and loved it and were excited about the complexity up front, but the opportunity on the other side. It was initially, it was Sal Churi at Trust Ventures and and some folks at Greenlight Reinsurance, which is a reinsurance company. And then soon after, Steve Osqui at Gigafund. You know, those were the, the initial investors that came in and they've remained our biggest investors from when we had 11 customers, you know, actually even earlier than that, from when we had, you know, a few customers, they saw that vision and they've kept doubling down at each stage where we needed more capital. And so they just remained our biggest investors. So that first year and a half of building, I was scraping together, you know, friends and family and old colleagues, just like writing checks without really understanding what we were doing. And we got a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank from that. But we had to find, you know, fellow travelers who saw this vision and embraced the ambition to really get institutional capital. Here's one of the things that I find so fascinating about that dynamic. And by the way, your experience talking to, you know, venture capitalists very well parallels with what I've seen as well. It feels like an industry where there's a tiny percentage of them are genuine leaders who are, yes. you know, who are out there finding the special opportunities, but the vast majority of the other investors are followers who are just waiting for those leaders to make a signal and then everyone wants to pile in. And so in the case of like, you mentioned Gigafund, 
obviously they're famous for backing SpaceX. And so they're like hugely well-respected in the investment community to the point where if Gigafund is making an investment, then all the other investors want to pile on. But it's kind of ironic how few of those other investors realize that part of Gigafund's success is their willingness to take risks like this. Yeah. The thing that impressed me so much about Gigafund and about trust was they formed conviction independently and they did it from first principles. And it's shocking how rare that is. Mm -hmm. Just very few people actually do that. It's going to lead to them having better returns and building more interesting businesses. Yep. You know, after bringing in those investors and, you know, now all of a sudden you have some pretty big names at the table. How did that change things for your business? How did it change things for the other conversations that you were having with, you know, potential partners, employees, other investors? What did that look like? We were still so small. It took two more years of building before I think we really started accelerating. Building a, a health insurance company and a healthcare company is not a trivial exercise. <laughs> and so there were all these operational things we had to overcome, you know, getting our network design rights and, you know, figuring out all of the issues we had with claims adjudication and getting our loss ratio dialed in so we weren't losing, you know, 20 cents for every dollar of insurance that we wrote. And those problems, I mean, a lot of other insurance companies have gotten to IPO, you know, not to name names, but pretty much every insure tech company that went public in the last couple of years is hemorrhaging cash. And because they basically scaled up without having figured out mm -hmm. how to make their business work. And, you know, kudos to our investors and also to our early team. And, you know, culturally, that's just not what we wanted to do. Yes, we wanted to grow fast. We want to build a company that lasts. And to do that, you have to build on a sustainable foundation. And so figuring out how we get all the stuff to work and be sustainable while also delivering a, a product and service experience that customers loved, like that was so important. That fuels the engine of growth. If you have your existing customers saying, it's amazing. I get access to things I wouldn't have gotten access to. Otherwise, the customer support's amazing. You know, it was so easy to use. Like, how do you make that experience happen while you're figuring out all the underlying mechanics of the business so that it actually works as a business? Mm -hmm. Like that, there was sort of a two-year period where we took that institutional capital we'd raised and funneled it into these projects to make our business work. And it's only been in the last year or two where it's really started humming. Like really in the last year where it started to take off and all those early investments in our technology and our team and our partnerships like it's really starting to, to work. And now we can start taking bigger swings that I think are really exciting. Let's jump off there and let's talk about what does the future look like for you guys? When you see, here's where we're at today. And if we want to become this unicorn that disrupts the healthcare industry, talk to us about kind of some steps that you see that you're going to have to take to get there. Our belief is that vertically integrating is the path to improving healthcare. And by vertically integrating, I mean, not just providing the insurance, the financial product, but also providing the care. And that is as big of a bet as, you know, building a, a provider in the parlance of the industry is as big of a bet as building a payer, which is what we started off with. And we've started making bets along those lines. Talk to me about the why behind vertical integration and talk to me from the perspective of I'm just a... 
you know, I'm just an employee who has this insurance plan. I'm signed up on SANA benefits. Why is it better for me to have SANA vertically integrated? So much of healthcare is predatory, inefficient. Like if you go to a hospital, if you go to an emergency room, you're going to be charged hundreds of dollars just for showing up. And God forbid they do something that actually do some procedure on you. You're going to be billed thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. And the rate at which you're billed is a fiction. It's totally detached from the underlying costs. And there are these games that the hospital is playing that have nothing to do with the actual care they're delivering. The incentives are all screwed up. I mean, that's the main thing is their incentive is to bill as much as they possibly can get away with, even if it's absurd, even if they're billing you hundreds of dollars for an Advil, if they can get away with it, they will. And you as the patient have sort of distorted incentives because maybe your health plan covers the cost. And so it doesn't feel like you're paying out of pocket for that stuff. And so there's some, you know, these absurd transactions that happen, or maybe you have a chronic disease like diabetes like who is incentivized in the system to care about how you're maintaining yourself? You know, how are you you're managing your disease? You're sort of keeping your weight in check, monitoring your nutrition. Like you yourself as an individual should have that incentive. But in our current system, most people are sort of left on their own, left to their own devices to figure that out. And there's no incentive for doctors to really follow up with you and make sure that you're adhering to whatever guidance they've given you. Meaning a doctor doesn't necessarily have a better outcome because you have a better outcome. And so there's a breakdown in alignment there. Is that what you're saying? The core problem is doctors today get paid on a fee-for-service basis, right? You show up to a doctor and they bill an office visit and maybe they do some other things and they bill for that. And then you leave. They don't get paid to see if you actually got the prescription filled or check in a week later and just ask you how you're doing. Or when you say, I'm not filling my prescription, I'm not taking my meds. They're not paid to like refer you to a nutritionist to help with stuff. Like there's not compensated for any of that. What they're compensated for is as getting as many office visits through in a day as they possibly can. Got it. And so if you go to primary care office, your experience is, you wait in a waiting room for a long time. You see the doctor for five minutes. They push you out and, you know, and then you pay your copay. Yep. And that's it. It's impersonal. It feels like you're like being processed through a factory. And at the factory, what it's producing is not better health outcomes. What it's producing is as many billable events as possible in a day. That's what doctors do today. And that is a fundamental misalignment with what the patient wants. And it's a fundamental misalignment with what's best for the patient, right? Like in the example of diabetes, the patient might neglect their condition and then have some really acute problem happen later where they might need to get, you know, something amputated or something. Some terrible thing might happen as a result. But the crazy thing is the health system wins in that case because you have a billable event from an office visit and then you have a really expensive billable event when you go to the hospital and have something happen to you. And so the health system is incentivized to do sick care instead of preventive or well mm-hmm. care. And, and that's just a, it's a failure of the pricing model and the billing model. Yep. And so this is where vertical integration really changes the incentives. Because if we are both the payer and the provider, then I don't care how many billable events happen. What I care about is that diabetic managing their condition well. Then I am incentivized to push out better care options for them and follow up and check in and build trust and take time to work with them, you know, where their normal primary care physician might want them in and out of the office as fast as possible because that's what they can bill for. 
will take a lot of time and work with the highest cost patients to make sure that they're getting the care they need. Because at the end of the day, you know, we might be paying the bill. And so we care about what happens to that person on their care journey. That's one of the many ways that vertical integration matters is it changes the incentive structure, but then also it opens up this world where you can start, if we're running open enrollment for a customer as the payer, we can start building a relationship with the patient early on, just when you're signing up for the health plan and start guiding them right at the top of the funnel. All these more modern ways of engaging with consumers, whether it's text messages or video chat or, you know, downloading an app, drip campaign marketing, like we can apply those methodologies for engaging people to do population health management. And we can change the compensation models for the doctors that work with us to incentivize them to do that kind of stuff as well. That's a game changer for how you lower costs and improve the experience. Love it. So aside from vertical integration, are there any other what you would kind of consider big milestone steps that you're going to have to take in achieving, you know, that end goal that you're working toward? Getting nationwide. You know, we're only mm-hmm. in eight states. Numbers growing by by the quarter. Making sure that we're available everywhere is a big hurdle and every state is different. And then building the actual solution. So vertical integration is the structure, but what is the actual solution? You know, how do you make a seamless telemedicine experience happen for a patient? And how do you match? Healthcare is not one thing. Every individual actually is quite unique with their healthcare needs. It's quite hard to bucket people because most people don't just have one thing. They might have a family predisposition to some condition and they might have knee pain from an old, you know, sports injury, or, you know, they might be expecting a child or they might have, you know, a back issue. And the combination of those things mean that everyone sort of has a unique journey. So building a matching, a personalized recommendation engine, essentially, to match patients with the best care That's a difficult technical project and building the interface that guides people to the appropriate solution and then partnering with all the appropriate solutions. That is hard work. And we've already done a lot of great stuff there. I'm spinning my head just thinking about all the complexity that you're facing with with these things, because like you said, it's every single individual and their health is completely different from the next person. It's massively complex. It is. What about from the perspective of getting the word out there, you know, telling the world who you are? That's where our collaboration comes in. That's where, you know, we at Harmon Brothers are super excited to get to help you tell that story. But talk to us about what the efforts are to try to to get that word out there. Great. We have a few ways that we do that. The traditional health insurance industry works through brokers or benefits consultants, you know, Aetna, for instance, or Blue Cross or Cigna, you know, they don't do very many direct sales to customers. They work with brokers who mm-hmm. sell the product. So that's one thing that we do. And, you know, we do a lot of that, you know, working with, with brokers because those brokers have client relationships. But the majority of our business actually comes from us building direct relationships with prospects and customers, which is very unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a sales team that does outbound sales. We've got a marketing team that does, you know, runs performance marketing, does events. And so we we have sort of traditional demand gen functions that we then send to our in-house licensed sales reps who who close those deals. And that's pretty unique. And I think our partnership with Harmon Brothers is particularly exciting because we have these direct relationships with these small businesses in a way that traditional 
insurance payers don't. And so we can start experimenting with how we communicate with our you know, customer base and you know, how we convey our value proposition. We can afford to be you know, a little bit more irreverent and risk-taking. And it's so exciting what Harmon Brothers brings to the table creatively. And then from a sort of media buying optimization standpoint, it's an exciting swing that we're taking that really we're, we're the only health insurance company in a position to do. Yeah, as a general rule, you're in an industry that is very, very risk averse and for lack of a better term, a bit bland in the way that they can tell stories and position themselves in the marketplace. That creates an opportunity. I, you know, I'd be lying if I said it doesn't make me a little bit nervous to take the swing because we do have to convey to our customers that they can trust us. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody has some terrible diagnosis, like a terminal diagnosis, they're coming to sauna and we're helping them through maybe the most difficult moment of their lives, yep. managing how they get care, making sure their bills are paid, giving them security in a very difficult moment. And so we have to maintain that. But I don't think that's in conflict with you know embracing things that are funny and meeting customers where they are at, with a sort of next generation product marketing to a next generation of buyers. So I don't think those things are in conflict, but it's definitely different than how the uh, the legacy insurers are, are acting and it's exciting. I love it. Man, Will, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show and have the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better and hear about the Sauna Benefits story. Thank you for joining us today. Benton, I enjoyed catching up and appreciate all the work your team has done with us. I'm, I'm excited with what we're doing. Appreciate it. Let's wrap up with one final question and one piece of advice that you would have for our listeners. For the entrepreneurs who are listening who are still finding themselves early in this journey to eventually become a unicorn, what would you recommend to those entrepreneurs who are still in the obscurity phase of things? Now, there's some survivorship bias in this recommendation, but I think if you're choosing between paths that are either less ambitious or more ambitious, choose the more ambitious one. It made it harder in the beginning, but much easier later to recruit people. Like right now, I can look at people I'm interviewing with a straight face and say, we're going to fix our healthcare system. Do you want to join? And I can lay out the path for how we're going to do that. So I'd say dial up the ambition as much as you're able to, and it'll make for a hard road in the near term, but an easier and more fulfilling road in the long run. People want to be part of something special. They do. And and that ambition has to come from you as the entrepreneur, as the founder, and embrace that. Awesome. Once again, thank you, Will. And for our listeners, make sure to like, share, and subscribe. We'll see you on the next one. If you like this podcast even a little bit, send the link to your business buddies. Because buddies hook buddies up with good podcast recommendations.